Building Men is brought to you by Finish the Race Apparel, ftrapparel.com, the creators of all things Building Men, and by Become Stronger Industries, become-stronger.com, the creators of handmade steel maces, hammers, and other badass equipment. Like any emotion, grief is something that needs to be completely felt all the way through. Holding on to it, bottling it up, creating tension around it is just going to create conflict in your life. It's going to create negative consequences both in your body and in your experiences with with your uh, community, with your relationships. So allowing yourself to be with it. You're listening to the Building Men Podcast with Dennis and Anthony Miralda, brothers on a mission to help you become the strongest version of yourself mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Morning, brother. Good morning. So we are recording this on a Tuesday morning. I was actually, yesterday was a challenging day. I was at a funeral yesterday, and I'm going to start my little pre-game discussion um, talking about the funeral that I was at. The, the funeral was the, the gentleman that passed. He was 42 years old. So it, me, I'll be 45 Thursday when we're recording this. Yeah. I'll be 45 on Thursday. So it really hit home with me. And the funeral was held in a Catholic church in Newark, Delaware. And as I'm there, we, we grew up in a Catholic family. So there was a part of me that I went back to this spot in my mind Growing up in a Catholic church, it just brought me back to that time in my life, first of all. And the one thing I wanted to discuss first was just the ceremonial aspect of death. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a weird way to start this off, but it, it helped the family heal. It helped the friends heal going through this this ceremony, this Catholic ceremony. And I, I'm not going to make this into a spiritual thing about religion or about Catholicism, the way that we were raised but I started to think about one, the way that we handle grief in mm-hmm. general. And I had a, a couple specific memories going back to my childhood. So dad's dad, um, he was Nicholas Moralda. We talked about our last name, Moraldi, Moraldo, Moralda. He yeah. was, this was the one, Nicholas Moralda. He died when I was in second grade. So I was seven years old, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I remember dad taking me and Tara into the backyard and kneeling down and telling us that we called him pop up that pop up had had died and i remember feeling numb and it, it's one of the first core memories that i have i would say but i also remember thinking how dad didn't show any emotion there right. was no emotion associated with the grief this was his dad that died and then i started to think fast forward it was a long period of time from when pop up died until we had another death in the family when i was like 27 28 years old and then they just became every couple months we were there was someone in our family that had passed and it was really uh, like i really started to think about grief in a deep way during that time but i remember thinking about how dad processed grief and it was a real significant part of my journey in masculinity was he he didn't feel into it. It was almost like he got angry. He was the, always pissed. Yeah. He, he never, there was other things that would make him mad more than usual when someone would die. I knew that someone wasn't doing well or something was happening because he would be angry, like yeah. viscerally angry at something going on. And we, that's who we look to, to like emulate. So what I took away from that was that I couldn't show emotion, especially in public. Right. Like any, think about how many funerals we've been through with our family yes, and 
we had to be there and be stoic and couldn't show in that moment when we were there, when everyone's expressing themselves, we weren't like we, we couldn't, we didn't know how to, because that's who we followed right. growing up all the time. And mom was a mush. Mom was very emotional, which, which was interesting as well. Just the dichotomy between the way that the dad process it and he would get angry he would almost pick fights with, with mom uh, with mom when she had someone right. pass away that was close to her and then think about us looking at that as a um viewing that from an outsider's perspective and we're watching not only how he handles grief but also how he handles other people handling grief right. so now he doesn't even know how to be open and how to be there like it would be one thing if he was like i'm gonna be this for your mother it was like no what is she doing? Why is she acting this way? Like this is re- and then he would get mad at her for random things. Yeah. I just it was And as I look back, I understand he didn't understand how to process grief. So the emotion that he was feeling cuz he, he wasn't able to truly get in touch with that emotional side of himself was being angry. Yeah. He knew that there was something bottled up inside of him he didn't know how to get in touch with it and so it 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 manifested itself as him being angry. I want to go back and give dad a hug and be like, it's okay. You can do it feel like, uh, into this right now. Um, you know, like Robin Williams and Matthew Damon. Yes, exactly. It's yep. Like, it's not your fault. Goodwill hunting. It's, it's not, not your, your fault. fault because yeah. the way that he was taught to process grief was in a, in a toxic way, I would say, as I look back at it. And I, I felt really sad yesterday thinking about that. And as, as I went through those, uh, funerals that we that our family it was just a really tough stretch of you know maybe six or seven years that we yeah. had gone through and typically i was the one who was up on you know giving a eulogy mm-hmm. uh, in front of a group during that time i was comfortable public speaking so i was the one up there and i had to you know be strong but be able to i showed emotion very deeply during that time i would choke up during the time and, and try to uh, power through those speeches that i would give for during the the viewings or during the the actual funeral itself but it made me think about it yesterday as i'm at this funeral at the very end the priest basically said two things that uh, that stuck with me that i wanted to start off the episode today with one was about grief and he said grief is a weird emotion it is it is the weirdest emotion people that are and and the the older sister of the of the guy who passed basically was just in that mode where i'm going to go I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Just kept checking things off and wasn't truly feeling it. Like it was Filling that numbness. Time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Just... It was just, you could just see that she was numb going through it. Um, and some people were really breaking down and feeling into the emotion. But he said, grief is weird in the way that you might not feel it today or tomorrow. It might be in a year from now, two years from now, but know that we're here for you to fully process it if you need us to. It was yeah. pretty cool for him to say that. So that was one thing that I thought of. And the second thing was, which is how I'll start off the episode today, at the at the end, he the family and friends were there, and he said, tell me a word that you would use to describe the, you know, the, the gentleman who had passed. Give me a word. That when you think of him, what word would you use? And the first word that I heard was curious. And then someone said adventurous. Someone said magnetic. Someone said caring. And I started to think about that idea and internalize it for myself. If I were in a casket, what words would I want the audience to use when they were speaking about me? The people that were there showing their love and and respect for me, honoring my life, what would be the words that I would want them to use as they were talking about me? And 
if those are the words that I want those people to use, am I embodying that with how I am showing up on a day-to-day -day basis? Is that how I'm living if I want people to say these or words Or even like me? the words they come up with, is that who you want to be known as? You know, what you think they would describe you right now, is that who, if yep. you were just like honest about who you are and how people would talk about you, is that how you even want to be described as? Or do you need to work on things to be this person that you want to emulate? So it's interesting that I, as you said that, I almost want to ask people what words would they use to describe me? I would use certain words to describe myself or what I would want to be known as. I want to ask friends and family, just be totally honest with me. What words would you use to describe me if you had that opportunity? Yeah, that's Don't not worry about my feelings. at all, right? <laughs> but just... No, I know. I know what you but, mean. <laughs> but just to... Am I in alignment with how I want to be viewed in that yeah. spot? And if I'm not, if people are saying the word douchebag, right. you know, and I'm, I mean, well, I'm not on the right path. Fuck. So you can't use, you can't use that one. Supposed, now. Okay. So <laughs> I will use that as an opportunity to <laughs> segue to our guest today. Um, on the Building Men podcast, we have John Perez Cruz. He is the CEO of Rising Warrior. He is a guide that helps transition veterans to regain their sense of purpose and create an authentic community. He is also the host or the co-host of the Rising Warrior podcast. Welcome to the Building Men podcast. JP, thanks for being here, my man. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to be here. So the way I'll start with is that that spot where the, the priest said, what what words would you want to be used to describe you if you were in in that spot? So you're, you come to the end of your days here. Um, mm. How would you want to be described by your friends and family in that location? Yeah, I love that question, man. I really appreciate you sharing that story. Um, grounded, deeply grounded. Um Hmm. Driven, clear, visionary, loving, connected, and I would say gentle. Gentle is an interesting yeah. word. Uh, yeah. Considering your your background, you know, and, and it's <laughs> and it's interesting because there is this juxtaposition of of that even that word gentle and w how you grew up and what you did in in your on your journey so i find that interesting yeah um so talk to us a little bit about where bring us back to your your spot in um in you know your younger days in school and and how you decided to go on the journey that you went to into the military yeah yeah I'll, uh take you guys on a ride here um so I actually was born and raised in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Um, I was born there, and I lived there until I was about 12 years old. Uh, and then I moved to a little town called Feeding Hills, Massachusetts. Um, um, and basically through my, my, my childhood, we – the reason why we moved to the States, there was, there was a – pretty big, uh, I'm going to call it a, a legal issue my dad had through one of his businesses. And in, I don't know if you guys have ever been in, involved in any of that or know anybody who's ever been involved in something like that. It's a civil suit. Um, and the way it went down was, you know, it was like a year of litigation, you know, going to court, all these different things. And ultimately he was found um, not guilty. Uh, but however, right, you spend a year 
paying for these things or business tanks. You can't do anything. So um, that led us down a path of being very financially destitute, moving to the U.S., um, living in a f my friend of my dad's basement uh, in his house in Feeding Hills. So, you know, probably a couple grand. I don't even know if it was a grand or two, but very little amount of money uh, that my mom had in hand. My dad stayed back in Puerto Rico to, to set things up, to close out the business so that we could move to the U.S. Uh, you know, classic Really, that idea of the American dream, um, finding better opportunities, better jobs, etc. So that's how it started. Um, and then in the ensuing years, I went to uh, middle school. I guess it was junior high school and then high school in, in the area. Um, so, you know, I was, a, I, was, I was what I like to call a cultural immigrant. I'm not an immigrant because I was an uh, American citizen coming in. But I was a cultural immigrant. So, like, language was different and I was shifting – my perspective is New England. New England and San Juan, Puerto Rico are very different places. <laughs> so uh, adjusting to that and, and understanding what any of that meant at the time uh, as a kid, I was 12. And then growing up there, um, doing sports in school, um, getting involved in languages. I've always been a big fan of languages. Just started taking French back then. Um, and then... Uh, you know, during those years, there was there was a lot of growing pains of being an immigrant family um, with in the place that we were financially at that time. We basically lived in a basement. Then, you know, eventually, like three or four months later, got kicked out of the house for just just arguments that we were having between the families, uh, and that led to being homeless, living in motels, uh, you know, like red roofs in and motel sixes and things like that for about uh, a year. Um, and then settling back and actually getting an apartment, uh, kind of trying to grow as a family. So um, we have a, we had a few of those instances. I, I think I had in, th in total three times that we had uh, kind of dire uh, financial circumstances. As like my mom is changing um, careers, she used to be a a secretary or executive assistant at the Supreme Court in Puerto Rico, and then um, you know with the language barrier and then coming to a whole new country. She wanted to – she had to really redesign what she could do. So it's just about can I get a job here? And so she started as an assistant teacher, eventually became a teacher. And my dad was still an entrepreneur and a business coach. So he was – you know, uh, you, you guys are entrepreneurs. So you know how that life works. You're like trying to make it all work. Um, and so that was sort of my teenage years. You know, that's going on tumultuous in my household. And then I'm trying to adjust to the culture and going to high school and da-da-da-da. Um, and so I actually didn't even hear about the military. Well, you know, I'd heard about it. There were recruiters at my school, but I didn't, it didn't really grab my attention until my senior year in high school. Um, you know, at the time I was wanting to go to college and I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I had no idea where I was going to go. I just knew that whatever was happening at my house was not it. Like I got to figure something out here. Um, but I was also kind of a dreamy kid. You know, I liked the arts. I was in, uh, like I said, I was into languages. I was in, uh, I was in drama clubs. So I was an actor and I liked to sing. I, I was into that stuff. And I was also an athlete. I played, uh, you know, I ran track for, for my whole time in school. Um, and I was into weightlifting. So I was, I kind of had these two areas of my life. It's a little bit of a nerd. You know, I wore these like nerdy glasses and I had kind of poofy hair and I was in all my honors and AP classes and so I had a, a bunch of these areas that I was playing with and um, 
if anybody would have asked you if John Perez at that time was going to go in the military, they'd be like, what? John Perez? <laughs> what? No way. That guy's going to like uh, art school or something. Um, but I went to, it was my senior year, and I went to a um, career conf, uh, sorry, it was like a college fair for his uh, minority students. So a lot of the um, African Americans, uh, East East Asian and then uh, Latino kids in our school um, went to this community college where they had this college fair. And while I was there, you know, this is probably like October of my senior year. So you're, people are already applying to schools and stuff. And I'm like, what am I going to do? Um, and I meet this this guy. His name is John Jones. John Jones, if you're out there, hit me up. Um, he was a lieutenant in the Navy. Uh, awesome guy. And he, you know, was wearing the the full whites, uh, the Navy whites. You guys ever seen that in any of those movies, you know, the long sleeves and the, and whatever. And few good impressive men. just few, to look few at few good it. men comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. A few good men. Exactly. That's the one. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so he came up and, or he was, you know, at a booth and I was walking around the other colleges. I noticed a lot, a lot of people were going over there. I think he was a little bit intimidating, just kind of what he was, was he was doing there. And, uh, I went over there and had a conversation, started talking about what, what, the, what the Naval Academy was. That's what he was representing. Um, I was like, the Naval Academy? I never heard of that. Um, and he started talking to me about, you know, it's a college, it's a liberal arts school, and you can study, you know, whatever, you know, in the liberal arts one that you want to, study political science, study English, study whatever. Um, and what really struck me was something that I, I didn't expect, and at the time, was, was, it was really drew me in. Um, you know, he started using words like leadership, um, started using words like honor, commitment, uh, service. And I, I, I'd, you know, they'd kind of been around a little bit, but, but not really at that time. They were, they were, they were completely foreign ideas and factors. That's not how I looked at the world at all. Like up until then it was about, you know, school. And then in my home life, it was like survival, like making this thing work. How do we do this? How do we make it in America kind of thing? Um, and so I was drawn by that, and I loved the idea of going to the school. And then the caveat or the, the bonus that it was paid for, right? You could go, and as long as you're accepted, you don't have to pay anything. The military pays for it. And I was like, holy shit, uh, this is amazing. Like, I, my family doesn't have any money to send me to college. I don't know how, you know, loans or any of that stuff. I didn't know how any of that stuff worked at the time. And so I was like, this is awesome. I can go to college. You know, I, I can be a leader and um, I can do this prestigious at the time I didn't realize the prestige of it yet I hadn't really understood it because no one I didn't know anybody who went there so it was more about like the values that they were that they were uh, espousing like what they were embodying and I I was really really drawn to it so I applied um, did like the preliminary application started that process and I was already really late to it um, like usually people start like you know the summer before or something so I'm, this is October um, and so the process of getting into the Naval Academy is like you have to get a nomination from a senator, a congressman, or I think the vice president or president. So it's a pretty small pool of people that you can get a nomination from. Um, and usually you have to send them your information and they do an interview, etc. And I was just really late to it. So I, I didn't have that opportunity. Um, and so I was declined from my, my congressman at the time. 
And then the only person that would take my call was uh, Senator Ted Kennedy's office in Boston. So he, you know, he was, at the time he was still alive. Um, and my, yeah, basically I was like, I don't know how to do this. And I went to my guidance counselor. We had a conversation and she got on the phone with me and we got on the phone with the, her, his assistant at his job who took care of all the nominations for the service academies. Um, did, did that part of it and she just kind of spoke about my story and told her like hey you know um he's a good kid he's got good grades he comes from this background like i think he's a really good addition and uh she the deadline was past due but she took it she took my application without an interview nothing um and so you know <laughs> roll the dice here we go <laughs> um i kept applying to schools and everything else and then later on i found out fast forward i think this was in november fast forward to april I received a letter that I had been accepted to the preparatory school, um, the Naval Academy Prep School, which is in Rhode Island, in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. So not exactly what I was, what I wanted, but I was so excited to go um, have an extra year of prep school before going there. And so that's where my journey started in the military, Navy Prep School in Newport, Rhode Island, and then a year there, and then a follow-on four years at the Naval Academy. So the movie Few Good Men is one of my all-time favorite movies. Yeah. You know that, right? Uh, I so I'm, I'm picturing Nathan, Nathan Jessup talking to Daniel Caffey <laughs> at, w- the first time that we met and Jessup is like, I eat breakfast 300 yards away from 100 soldiers who are trained to kill me. So don't think you're going to come in here, flash a badge, and make me nervous. <laughs> it's good. Love it. That's what I was doing. I was going to say, is that what you were writing down when you had that? I want you to stand here in your faggoty white uniform and extend me some fucking courtesy. That's what he says. I, it's one of my all-time favorite movies. The it's end amazing. of that movie is absolutely tremendous. So, yeah. as you were as you were talking, JP, I want to I want to go back and unpack a little bit the the yeah, trauma yeah. that you experienced growing up as a middle school principal. There were there were times in my career that I needed to understand what was going on in, in, in homes where a family became homeless and just the, the tr- traumatic experience that must have been like for you in, at several times where your father may or may not have been there. You know, he might have been taking care of business um, in Puerto Rico and you were there with your mother and, you know, everything that was going on there. How did that impact you as a student? You mentioned it was middle into high school that that was going on. How did that impact you at yeah. that time? having to deal with everything at home and trying to, and we know as middle school students, you have to, or even like a social life. Yeah, exactly. Talk to us a little bit about it, about that experience first. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so we, I actually came into the way my region called it. They had middle school and junior high school. So junior high was seventh and eighth, but anyway, same, same concept. Um, you know, I was surprisingly really, I, I, I don't remember if it was because I was just simply a good student, quote unquote. I just I just liked being there. Like I enjoyed school. I liked I didn't enjoy the contract of school, but I liked learning. Like I didn't like the class. You know, fifty minutes bell, ten minutes break, go to the next class. Um, and you know, there were there were a couple of things. First, that was just my own. You know, how I was as a kid. And then the other piece was. Um, there was a lot of pressure from my parents as well to succeed. Um, you know, part of it was, and you know, I, I'd love to talk about it later as well, but the, the kind of good boy syndrome. Like, you know, I was the eldest of my two, of me and my brothers, just like you guys were always riffing and kind of, you know, getting on each other's nerves when we were kids. Um, and 
so I was the eldest. I was the eldest in my cousins, um, and I there was a lot of expectation when we came to the U.S. And I spoke pretty good English already when I came here. So it was yeah, it was a lot of pressure from home. Like you need to succeed, and I could I knew there was a lot of um, no. It's a no fail mission. My dad used to say something like that when we were kids. So. Uh, yeah, I think it was partly I was interested in the topics, certain of them. You know, it was America, it was new, it was exciting, English, like I was listening and, and learning all these things. And then at the same time, there was a lot of pressure from home to succeed. So I, I would say it's a combination of those things. JP, you mentioned the one night good boy syndrome. Um, definitely hit home with me. And I, I also think about birth order. You know, they, they. I see all these funny memes where they have yeah. where the, the oldest son is. He comes back and he's like, "I just counted. There are thirty-seven windows in this household," and the the youngest is jumping out of the window to go outside and run yeah. around naked. And that's what <laughs> he's we- covered in butter and <laughs> fucking. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. But you also mentioned the way that schools were set up. You had a, had a fifty-minute class. You had a break. You moved on to the next class for fifty minutes. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about school and education on this podcast and they're not synonymous mm-hmm. schooling and education are, are vastly different mm-hmm. and you you had a you had this will to learn and you wanted to learn but the way schools were set up maybe didn't provide that opportunity the way that it could have or should have even if you could mm-hmm. go back to that time in your life and adjust the way that schools were set up it could be the the structure the flow of the day or even just what you were learning in school at that time how would you change your experience in that junior high school into high school time frame mm. i would say i would make school later first and foremost uh, like i think we started at like 7 a.m which is insane now that i think about it like we woke up at yeah something like 5 30 or 5 45 like mom was cooking breakfast and then it's it's off to school so um I would definitely say start later, 9, 10 in the morning. Um, and then I would have – I would create a system if it were possible to have a lot less structure in terms of what classes you have to take and more allowing kids to, you know, create like, you know, three basic things like math and a science and a language, something like that. And everything else could be a little bit more exploratory about what you want to study um, definitely take out those hard, hard, I don't know if you guys had them, but the hard desks that were connected with that metal bar oh, next yeah, to it. Oh, yeah, dude, absolutely. Oh, they were hate the worst. those things. And they, they, were, yes, they were geared for righties, too. And um, yes, we have a righty, lefty yep. in our family. Our sister Megan is a lefty. My daughter Sophia is a lefty. You're out there on your own. Your left elbow is kind of floating, floating around in the breeze. And there's right? also enough gum underneath all of those desks. Like people just – they've been stuck there for like yeah. decades of just dirty <laughs> gum underneath those hard desks. Right. Oh, that was the worst. So your structure yeah. then. So I like that idea of one less challenging structurally uh, desk to, to set up. Yeah, the, I think that's a, good, that's a good starting that's point. It's a good start. So even the physical yeah, structure. I think, I think some schools do that already. Like they have um, – probably not public schools as much. This is my assumption. Um but pro- probably some of the, the, the private schools and the and – the, uh, what are those schools called when you um, – So there's charter, for, charter schools? Charter schools. Yep. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, smaller groups, uh, more discussion than just lecture. You know, if I'm 12 or 13, like why are you lecturing to me? This is not a great way for kids to learn. Like it should be a 
15 minutes of an introduction and then go like test it out. Here's some exercises. Um, so I do a lot more of that for sure. I tell teachers all the time as I work with them, if you could say something in 37 words, don't use 622. <laughs> Be more succinct. Yeah. Be, like understand the, the, the premise of brevity as you're speaking to kids they're going to stop listening to you after the 37th word anyway so be yep. really impactful and and cognizant of the language that you're using so before we close the loop on that you mentioned yep. there should be a you know some type of a language some type of math perhaps a science what was a course that you wish you had in in school that would benefit you benefit you tremendously now as an adult oh that's a really interesting question um, let's see. Hmm. Honestly, if I could go back to high school, I would teach like the very basic fundamentals of business. Um, and I, I don't mean like, uh, start your own business right at the high school kind of thing. I mean like a business 101, here's how businesses work in general. Um, and, I, and I see that now, even even in the military, it, was it would have been more helpful to understand how organizations are structured, um, particularly as businesses, because I think it's something that it permeates like almost all of our lives. I mean a hospital is a business, you know, like almost everything is a, a form of business. So introducing that and then and then you know and you know zooming out into the larger context of like what is a business and then how does it play into what how are you going to be in the world because um, i think that would have given a lot of us some grounding honestly like oh okay i understand what a business is cool what kind of business do i want to be in or if i don't want to be in a business something like the military or the peace corps something like that still understand that it operates under some of those basic principles uh, of a business. You talked to us about your journey and you left off, you spoke with your, with your counselor, you met the, um, John Jones, John Jones, John L. Jones, John yep. L. Jones. Yep. Um, do you know what the L stood for? No idea. Oh, man, it's so good. I listened to Your the, the Santee yeah. interview this morning about middle names. I think, I think I, I, I believe let, not 100% sure. I'm like 40% sure about this. It was uh, Lee. Because he was... John um, Lee Jones. John, he was an Asian American. Yeah. That's a powerful Asian name, though. That's... John Lee Jones. That's a powerful John, name. I know. John Lee Jones. <laughs> yeah. And just, I love the L. I love the... I wish, yeah. Anthony, Anthony L. J. Morales. It no. doesn't do the same thing. <laughs> all of it. It's, all, it's all terrible. Doesn't, it's all, it's all bad. Yeah. All but, <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> so now you you've you've had yeah. these these two individuals in your life. You had you had John L. Jones. You had um, the counselor who took a you know rolled the dice, took a you know a, a gamble on yeah. you and what you were going mm -hmm. to be capable of. Um, so now you enter the armed forces. Talk to us about that experience, and then take take us on that journey from there to how you decided to uh, start the Rising Warrior or, or become involved with the Rising Warrior. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um... I want to shout out one one other person that um, really supported me in that journey. His name is Bob Kalane. Um He was my blue and gold officer. So the Naval Academy has these kind of representatives who are just regional that get people into the, the application process. And he was an unbelievably helpful and, and powerful person in my life. So I just wanted to, to, to cover that because I, I see him almost every year for his – he does like a um, – 
reunions of all of us that he that got into the Naval Academy for, for, through his help. So put that out there. Bob, I love you. Thank you so much. Um, the So Navy prep school, then the Naval Academy. Um, went to the Naval Academy for four years. I uh, studied political science and a minor in French. Uh, so I kept the French going from all the way from uh, junior high school, um, which was awesome, by the way. Uh, it was one of the cheat codes at a service academy. When you, when you do a language, you get to travel, too. So uh, I did that language, and I got to go to France for uh, – it was a month-long – uh, completely paid for trip over there, and I li- all I literally did was learn a language there. So I, I just went to class three hours a day, and then like hung out in Paris for for a month. It was amazing. Um, and then I got to go later as a senior for a semester at uh, I'm going to say this in French, École Quotidienne Saint-Cyr. So it was like a the French version of West Point. So their military school. I got to do that, which was really eye-opening about how other uh, militaries in the world work super powerful experience um, and really fun too so studied political science did that at the naval academy and while i'm there you know you start what you do what's called service selection you decide what you want to do in either the navy or the marine corps so you can do uh submarines surface warfare um eod seals uh Aviation, so you can be a Navy pilot, or you can be a Marine ground or Marine air. So you get you get your pick of the litter, and there's there's a few jobs there for restricted line, engineering, uh, information warfare. There's a couple other kind of um, smaller uh, portions of the Navy. So you're going to commission as an officer, and I commissioned in 2014 uh, in the as a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps. Um, and yeah, I. What the Marine Corps meant to me that was different from the Navy, which interestingly enough was less business-like than the Navy. Um, there was what I felt at the time that that really struck with me was a lot more camaraderie. Um, you know, there was there was a level of people were more motivated to do the mission. That that was my perception at the time. Um, they were driven, they were tough, they were badass dudes and gals, and there was this picture of like, yeah, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the uh, commercials, but even while I was at the Naval Academy, I would watch them, and, and it would be like a Marine in training or in combat or something, and and at the end, it would be like, you know, we don't offer you a college degree or any of this shit, like, uh, I forget what the lines were, but it, there was something around like, you know, take on the challenge. Like, are you are you ready for this? Can you do this? It was more like challenging than like join our thing because because we'll pay for your college. Um, and, and and you know that part now that I understand a little bit about marketing, I I, I see how powerful it was. But um, you know that message that that the Marine Corps was was really honing in on, and then my own desire to have this kind of bonded, uh, genuine. Uh, brotherhood and and to be a genuine leader in the way that I understood it at that time is what drew me into the Marine Corps. So um, did this training between my senior, my junior year and senior year called Leatherneck, which is like our condensed version of Officer Candidate School OCS. Um, got selected to be a Marine that fall. Uh, got selected to be a Marine pilot actually originally, and then 
right as I was about to graduate, got disqualified from it. Um, I had asthma as a kid, and I had no issues that were present at the time, but I didn't meet some kind of threshold. So um, anyway, that went out, out the wayside. And um, one of the really interesting parts of my journey was that right as I was about to commission, it was I remember it. I remember the day specifically. I would believe it was March 31st of my senior year. We're doing practicums, so we're it's our final. Um, we're about to get into the Marine Corps, so they make sure you do a semester of. It's like a combination of leadership training and an actual tactics, uh, Marine tactics. So, oh, infantry platoon tactics, just kind of the very very basic. So we were doing a land navigation course. I don't know if you guys are familiar to that um, with land nav, but just kind of learning how to use a map and a compass and find boxes in the woods. That's like the basics of it. Um, and we were, it was a rainy day. We're out there doing land. That was our final exercise. It was our, you know, our final test. And I'm walking through the woods. I, I'm like literally on the way to my first box. And this is like a four hour event. You have to find, I think it was like eight boxes. My first box, and I'm going down this kind of, uh, uh, trail, it, you know, heavily. It was it was in the spring, so it was still a little chilly. It was rainy, and there's all these leaves everywhere. And I start coming down this tiny little kind of hill. And as I'm coming down, I do the side shimmy where you kind of slide, you know, try to slide down the hill. Yeah. And boom, my foot gets stuck in the mud. I didn't see this mud beneath the leaves. And I, but my body's still moving forward with like the pack I'm wearing. So as I'm coming over, my my fibula, which I found out later, my ankle breaks. Boom, pop, and I'm on the ground screaming for dear life. Um, and I luckily we had been trained, so we had our little whistle, blue eye whistle, and somebody came to help me out. A couple guys brought me to the road. I went to the hospital. Um, yeah, it turns out I broke my fibula and I tore all the ligaments in my ankle. And so uh, the journey to the Marine Corps was a lot more difficult than I had originally imagined because now I have a broken foot and I'm about two months from graduation. I get, I have to get surgery, you know, physical therapy, uh, you know, it's a pretty, pretty intense break. And then as I'm going through that process, I found out that I can't be a pilot anymore. So it, that was really at the time sucked, you know, in hindsight, it was, it was really powerful and helpful that that worked out that way. But at the time I was fucking devastated. So, um, you know, it's about, April at that point, May is when graduation is. So this is this is all happening. Like, broke my leg, found out I couldn't uh, commission as a pilot. Then I got another email that said you you actually can't commission. You have to delay your commissioning because you're not 100% fit to commission on that date. May I think it was May 25th, something like that. Um, so you have to delay your graduation until such time that you could pass the physical exam. So now I'm like, oh, and I, this is finals week, by the way. So I'm taking all my tests. So this is what's happening. And then go fast forward to graduation week, and I was able to, uh, you know, at that time get off the cast, and I had the soft cast, and I was going to walk. They actually allowed me to walk. They said, hey, you can't commission, but you've been here four years. Like, we're not going to take this away from you and your family. We're going to let you dress uh, you could put on the rank and everything. You could have the whole ceremony, but afterwards you have to take it off because you're not actually commissioned. Um, so commissioned that day or graduated that day. So I had my diploma, but I didn't have my commission. So I was a super senior for uh, uh, until July, three months. 
So that summer was basically just rehab and working at the international programs office at the Naval Academy. So working with a lot of the kids that were traveling abroad, just like I did. Um, that's where the journey started into the Marine Corps. Uh, started the basic school, which is the first school out of the uh, in the Marine Corps in December. So I took all that period to 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 heal. Commissioned in July 29th, and then I went to school in December uh, to go to the basic school, which is where they teach um, Marines, Marine officers, all Marine officers, pilots included, uh, basic infantry uh, platoon tactics. Um, then from there. Uh, I went to. I got selected to be a, a logistics officer. So, at the basic school, you get to choose once again. It's another selection between all the ground MOSs, all the jobs you can do in the Marine Corps. You have to choose what you want, um, and then it's a randomized uh, uh, selection process. And I became a logistics officer in North Carolina, is where the school's at. Did that for three months, and then I was my actual duty station was 29 Palms, California, out in the desert in California. That was in, I've checked into my first unit November of 2015. Building men of character, integrity, strength, compassion, and empathy through transformational mentoring, coaching, and motivational speaking is our mission here at Building Men. To work with me as a one-on-one -on -one life coach, you can find information in the show notes or you can visit our website at buildingmen.io where you can book a free 30-minute discovery call to help you become the strongest version of yourself mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Now, back to the show. As you were talking, JP, I was thinking Matthew Markinson and Jonathan Kendrick from from A Few Good Men. <laughs> when, when, when they have Kendrick up on the stand, he says the four things are honor, code, God, and country, or honor, core, God, country. Is that mm. is that what you hear? Is that is that was that legit? Was Kendrick was saying in the Marine? Yeah, your honor core is it core honor core God country? Yeah, I don't remember the God being in there, but definitely honor core country for sure. Okay, maybe Kendrick um, just threw that in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for for dramatic effect. Uh, yeah. Kiefer um, he was so good in that role. <laughs> oh my God, it's, it's my favorite movie. I can tell yeah. you're getting kitty right now. That so yeah. that injury that just when you mentioned that it just yeah. brought me back because I broke my leg when I was 19 and had the same thing except I wasn't in the <laughs> Marine Corps. And I wasn't, uh, Your story involves alcohol, a hangover. No, right? well, so, I mean I was probably hungover, but I was just running to go pet my friend's dog and I slipped on ice and then my foot Ooh. caught like the pavement. It was like a small patch of ice and yeah. all, you know, 230 pounds of me just rolled over my leg and I broke my fibula, my tibia, and then the ligaments in my I had the same thing except I had a tibia oh. too on top of that. So I win. Yeah, so but, you, you know that length of process of recovery. Yeah, and that's why when you're talking about it, like you had yeah. to, you have to do some serious rehab for that. I mean, just to be able to yeah. like, I was in a wheelchair, you know, I couldn't even put any pressure on it. Like it was, so I can't even imagine what that experience was like in itself. But um, going back to the Marine Corps, like you said, you're very, you know, you're into theater, you're into, you know, performing <laughs> arts, like all this stuff, like yeah. Did you feel like you had to really sacrifice that authentic part of you to be able to be successful in the Marine Corps? Like, what was that like? And did you feel like you're kind 100%. of giving up a part of you? Like, are you giving up your who JP really is? And yeah, what did that yeah. feel like? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. There was a lot of that. Um, you know, I, 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 th I wasn't I was very 
I was aware of it, but I wasn't aware of how much it would impact me over the years. I didn't realize how it would, it, you know, it would lead to a lot of depression, anxiety, and, and a lack of meaning later on in my life, um, you know, my, my time in the Marine Corps. But at the time, I was, I was so involved in being a Marine. Like, I wanted to be a badass motherfucker. I wanted to be a leader. Like, this was my shit. I was focused on what I was doing. And it was just... You know, I, I, I don't know. The, my, my experience was I'm going through training. This is going to take some grit. It's going to take a lot of focus. And, you know, there was a part of me that at the time thought I can put some of that stuff behind me. Like I, I didn't become whatever, an artist or, or, or a perform. None of those things that kind of I was interested in before. I, this is my new identity. Like I'm a Marine now. This is what I do. And, and it's very much how we're taught to do. Um, like you put on the uniform and it's not just putting on a uniform. It's putting on an identity. It's putting on a version of you that, that in many ways leaves behind the versions of you that you were before. It's almost a requirement of the, of the job. So, um, you know, I don't know that I noticed right away the effect of it, but I, I you know, there was some parts of me that I was, I wasn't as expressive. I didn't. I didn't do as much. You know, I wasn't going to France and hanging out with a bunch of, you know, people in Paris or whatever, or hanging out by the Seine, drinking wine and playing guitar. Like I wasn't doing any of those things anymore. I was fucking intensely focused on being a leader and, and succeeding at this at this program, or the the several different training programs before I got to the fleet. Um, so I I think at the time the effect wasn't quite. I hadn't quite understood what it would be to let those parts of myself go. I was completely bought into this is what the, this is what a Marine officer does. And this is who I'm going to be. Do you think that that contributed to, you mentioned you dealt with depression, anxiety for a period of time. Do you feel that that had a direct correlation to that? You feeling like you needed to be this badass motherfucking Marine and, and look sound like it, it needed to look a certain way. But inside yes. of you, there was this other part of you that was like i want to you know play guitar and eat baguettes and you know paint and do whatever do you think that that contributed to it a hundred percent yep I, w I would say it's, it's one of the many factors right you already have you know we talk about this but we carry a lot of trauma already from our childhood from being homeless from people yelling in my house from the chaos of not having enough money uh, all these two things now compounded by like a, a ver an intense version of hyper masculinity that was was supporting this this type of identity as a marine officer so you know it, it did lead to eventually so much suppression of that what you just said like eating baguettes playing guitar hanging out it, it was you know entertainment or play or fun became like drinking or partying or going out or fucking you know getting into fights when you're drinking like you know all these different or, or you know, the type of working out where you're constantly pushing yourself and grinding and, and hustling, you know, um, those those things is what permeated a lot of my reality at the time in the Marine Corps. And and yeah, I, I you know, to, to answer your question, that process was definitely it was like a suppressing series of factors that that, you know, was like a, a, a what I think a lot of us uh, struggle with in the military, especially when we leave is you've been kind of 
turned into this one version of you, this one, this one probability of your personality, drilled it in for years and years, and then all of those other aspects, you haven't even touched them for years. And so you're left with this sense of fatigue, the sense of depression, the sense of, holy shit, this cannot be what life is about. Like, I like leading. I like being a Marine. You know, I like some of these things, but I am I'm completely trapped in this identity that I created for myself. And so for like, it's funny because I, until you actually spoke about it, I had no idea that you were in the military or anything. And just when we were at our retreat together, people don't know we, I went to training camp for the soul and that's where I met JP for the first time. And I would describe him as, without knowing any of his background, I would say he was playful, free-spirited, he was um, funny, he was like just this this person that you just want to be around. He just emulated just so much yeah. energy and just like, again, like very go-with-the-flow type of person. And there was nothing about you that I felt like was how I would describe someone in the military as like rigid intimidating you know this this person that i'm like holy crap you know don't fuck with this guy and all of a sudden you just like you know <laughs> kind of like slowly mention that you power clean like 350 pounds or whatever it was and i'm like oh okay <laughs> holy fuck um but was there a moment that when you were out of the military maybe you were in the military where you were like what what made you want to start looking into this more like that you realized that you were becoming yeah. someone that maybe you didn't necessarily like or you were suppressing who you really are was there something that opened up your eyes to it or some sort of moment that in time where you were like i need to change or what made you look inward more yeah yeah absolutely man um so you know i'll start with where i was stationed i was stationed in the desert uh, 29 Palms, California. It's right next to Joshua Tree, if you guys are familiar with the area. Um, high desert, summers are like 120 degrees, and winters, you know, get pretty cold. They actually get down in the 30s. Um, and it's pretty desolate. It's not a lot going on. Uh, you know, there's the national park, and there's people who come in to see the national park, and then there's the base, and pretty much all that's going on there is the national park and the base. There's really not that much else going on in the area. So, um, you know, what that led to after, for me, it was about three, three and a half years, uh, or no, two years, two to two and a half years of me being in the desert and being in a Marine and doing all this stuff. Um, it starts to wear on you. First of all, you're in your mid twenties. So you just, you're kind of excited to be in the world. You know, I traveled a bunch before and I was excited to be in the fleet. You know, part of it was the adventure of it. Um, and I didn't get that right. I was stationary in, in the desert um, training all the time. We were really good at what we were doing. We were, we were absolutely well prepared to go to, to go to war. Um, and I wasn't exposed to a lot of other things. So in that dealing with that, and then after a while of like really getting depressed in that space of, you know, suppressing my emotions, suppressing who I was, and then plus all this training in the desert, it led to a lot of introspection. There were a lot of freaking time in the desert, a lot of time. And very quiet. It's not at all like what I live now. It's it's so still. And so there was a lot of time for me to do a lot of self-reflection and and asking myself, like, is this what I want out of life? Like, do I want to be doing this? Like, I, I you know, I, I'm proud of my service and I look back and I, I, I do think 
you know, at that time in my life, I was like, this isn't how I wanted it to go. This is not the vision I have of, of an adventurous, uh, you know, life of, of, you know, intrigue and like exploring what was out there. I was, I was in this little sandbox playing Marine and I wasn't enjoying it anymore. So, um, I started, I was always interested in like getting down to the deeper layers of things. So I was, um, you know, listening to one of my mentors now, Mike Bledsoe, um, uh, kind of tangentially, I was also doing CrossFit at the time. So I did that for, for three or four years and, you know, listening to all these different fitness podcasts and Mike Bledsoe out there, he's a veteran, Navy veteran, and he's talking about psychedelics and he's talking about all these like out of the box things that I was like, what? How did the shit that this guy get into all this stuff? And I'm so ball. I'm like, you know, I'm in the car going to my CrossFit gym after after being at on base, like doing all this uh, work. You know, listening to this guy talk about all this different rabbit holes that he's been in. I am so fascinated by it. Um, you know, him and among uh, some other ideas I followed. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Joseph Campbell and the Hero's Journey. Um, but I started diving into those areas as well, like kind of getting into comparative mythology and psychology through Carl Jung. And I started just exploring the mind more and, and understanding. I wanted to know myself. I want to understand myself better. And like, what is this thing I'm feeling that, that people are calling depression? Um, so I, that's where my, my sort of surf exploration started. And then as I was introduced to psychedelics in an idea, I started reading about it. And I, I haven't shared this publicly before, but I was – uh, I was still in my final year in the military, and I, I actually – somebody, a neighbor of mine offered me to do mushrooms, uh, psilocybin, and we went out to the desert one Sunday, and, and, and uh, I mean paradigm, truly paradigm-shifting experience. Like I was in the military. I didn't know any of these things. I, this was completely foreign. I, I'd never really done – you know broken any rules like I, I was I was the like I said earlier the good boy like I was you know marine captain I was doing my job this is what you do this is how you succeed etc and all of a sudden it was like boom like explosion of consciousness like what the fuck is this so that opened my world completely not to mention that I'd already been exploring some of these other things and so you know that was the first like kind of inkling like there's more to reality than what you think there is and um you know, it was it was a process. The next year of like me processing it, realizing what happened. I didn't know what to do um, with that information. And but anyway, that that's the seed that was planted. I knew I was gonna at that point. I for sure I was like, I'm leaving the Marine Corps. I'm gonna do something else. I just don't know what. Um, then this is where it gets really interesting. The summer, I did a thing called the Corporate Fellowship Program, which is basically you go to a corporation for three months. You're still in the military technically, but you're on temporary duty. My last three months in the military were actually in New York City working at HuffPost, the Huffington Post of all the places. Um, and so I, I worked there as a um, on the strategy team. I was really just kind of a strategy consultant. They didn't really have a role for me, so I was really just kind of understanding like how the newsroom worked, how you know they managed projects, how they created content, how they had um, you know funding and advertisement, all that stuff. So I was completely removed from the desert, and then like boom, set into New York City, like in the middle of chaos, um, having those experiences, and and that was a really again a powerful experience of expansion, where all of a sudden I'm in the middle of a city learning about 
media. Like I, I, and it was, it was fast. It was fi- primarily like female, uh, environment. Um, I think it was like 75% women, uh, who worked at HuffPo and HuffPost. And I had this experience where I'm like hyper masculine to like hyper feminine environment. <laughs> and I, and I get these giant shifts and I'm there working there. And I realized like at the time I didn't want to be in like corporate anything. So I'm like, I'm out of here. Like this has been a cool experience, but I am not interested in any of this stuff. So the journey then takes me to when I, this is when I started really daydreaming and, and, and planning. Uh, I sold my car while I was in the desert and then I took all my savings and I planned a one year Euro trip backpacking in Europe by myself, solo trip. And so, uh, I ended up doing, I know I only ended up doing three months, luckily because of COVID later, I ended up doing only three months in Europe, backpacked there, started in Spain, went to England and then, uh, uh, Ireland. Um, super incredible experience. Again, I'm like middle of the desert, New York city chaos. Like, okay, cool. I don't want to be corporate, but I'm learning all these things about life. And then all of a sudden I'm like thrust into the world by myself with a backpack. And this is when the artistic stuff that I talked about earlier starts coming back. I start writing poetry. I start taking long ass walks. I start growing my hair out. I stopped cutting my hair at the time. Um, I got a tattoo. I like, it was really out there experimenting with life and, and in, in adventuring in the way that I'd wanted to, like completely no rules, like staying in hostels, like going all over the place, going to concerts, enjoying myself. Um, and you know, that progression is when in that period is when things started to, I started to ask the big questions again, like, what is my purpose? Like, why doesn't this feel meaningful? Like, I love doing this, but it doesn't feel meaningful right now. Uh, what is my purpose in all this? Why am I doing this? And so as I'm traveling, those questions are, are also happening. Um, and then my journey ended up taking me to, I wanted to expand kind of my, my art form. And I, I, I had an idea of like, okay, maybe it was art. Maybe I missed something when I was 17 or 18. Maybe I went to the military and I, I, I forsook, you know, a whole part of me. Maybe I got to get it back. And so I was inspired and I, I moved to Austin, Texas uh, in three months later. So in November and I got a guitar teacher and that's all I did. I, I had money enough to like pay rent, take guitar classes and just dive into poetry and guitar, and that was it. Um, that that journey kind of evolved, and uh, I met a guy at a friend's birthday party that led me into um, working as a lacrosse coach. So I played lacrosse at the Naval Academy. I think I, I missed that earlier, but um, a, a high school lacrosse coach uh, for the from like January all the way to June, you know, in the middle of the pandemic as well. So. Um, you know, th- again, another huge shift in, in identity and in perspective. And now all of a sudden now I'm, I'm coaching again, which I love. I love leading. I love coaching people. And so it's a part of me that I'd sort of left behind as I was traveling. Now I've added this like art, you know, piece of it. I'm playing guitar. I'm writing poetry. I'm, uh, I'm now coaching again. And I, I'm starting to build this like, okay, uh, this is awesome. I feel way more fulfilled than I ever have. But there's still those questions, those pressing questions. Um, and, uh, you know, as I was coaching, the pandemic happened and, uh, I ended up doing the strong coach, uh, that was again, Mike Bledsoe's company, uh, did that for a few months and I go into 
the strong coach with this idea of starting a strength and conditioning business for lacrosse players. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'm out of options in Austin. Like, uh, there's the jobs are drying up. This thing called the pandemic, like no one's ever heard of it since 1917. And I'm like, holy shit, the world is falling apart. I just got out of the military. What the hell am I going to do? I'm making like, you know, basically no money, uh, like a 1200 bucks a month uh, coaching lacrosse. So I'm like, all right, this obviously isn't working. Um, you know, I want to have my own place. I want to create my own life. And at the time I'm living with roommates in Austin coaching lacrosse. And, um, so I'm doing the strong coach and I'm like, okay, getting, you know, one of the things that we started talking about is this is where like the connecting file between what I'd been doing and, and exploring uh, psychology, uh, depth psychology and psychedelics and all that stuff that I've been into and a lot of uh, um, uh, poetry about meaning and purpose, um, connecting with the program and the strong coach and they start talking about language. They start talking about beliefs, uh, my beliefs around money, your beliefs around your worthiness. And I'm like, what the fuck? I never heard this. Like, so there's all these underlying beliefs that are that are limiting what people can do because they think they can't. And I was like, holy shit! So one of the first limiting beliefs was around making um, making six figures. I thought like that that was this like an unreachable ceiling that I could never get, even after being in the military. Um, for whatever reason, it's just a story I had in my head. So that one, you know, I cut right to it. And I, I ended up taking a job in D.C. actually where I live now as a management consultant for a big uh, consulting firm. Um, and that was a really powerful experience once again. Again, another big shift. Now I'm in a corporate environment as I finish up the Strong Coach because um, I was interested and passionate about learning about business. Like I wanted to know more. Uh, and at the time I was, you know, if I'm being totally honest, I was scared. I was scared of shit. I was like, you know, I'm not making any money. I'm in Austin. I'm in a place I don't know. I don't have a real community. I started building a small community, but it hadn't really materialized yet. So I was like, I don't really have an attachment to here. My family lives in Massachusetts. My friends are all over the place. They're either still in the military or they uh, just got out and they are themselves figuring out what to do next. And I was like, safety. I want safety. Like I, I need to like get into business and like, you know, creative structure and make six figures. So in a way I like busted through that limiting belief of not making enough money. And at the same time, I fell back into patterns of big corporate, uh, you know, massive organizational environments with lots of rules and regulations and things you can and can't do. Um, so that area, you know, in those ensuing months started creating a lot of tension because I found myself, in, you know, it was, it was, um, manager consulting for, uh, defense contractors, or sorry, we were the defense contracts for for um, agencies in here in DC. So I'm now in a world again where like I'm sort of tapping back into that like defense military kind of mindset on the business side of it with all this information and and new new energy and understanding around beliefs, around language work, around like who do you want to be in the world? What is fulfilling to you that I learned in the strong coach? And I'm completely like, there's turmoil in my heart and soul and mind. Like I'm like, in one hand, I'm doing well financially. I'm crushing it. I've got a nice car. I've got my own apartment. This is going great. And on the other hand, I don't believe in what I'm doing. It's not connecting with me. I'm completely, you know, devo you know, con disconnected from my soul, from my heart. So these things are, 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 you know, at the forefront of what is in in front of my mind. And that's when I joined TCS. 
um, in November of last year, 2020. Um, and that was the beginning of a beautiful fucking journey that has been the last year of my life of really getting down to the, to the center, getting down to the core. Um, so I think that whole story yeah. answers your question. <laughs> so then talk to us a little bit about real quickly. Um, how does, how do you then take that idea what you did in the military, your background, your artistic nature, training camp for the soul, um, that masculine feminine journey you've been on, you know, the dichotomy mm -hmm. there as well, to create or be involved with Rising Warrior. So talk to us a little bit about Rising Warrior now. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the Rising Warrior uh, was started by Lance Davis um, and then uh, partnered with Sean Lazio later on. And I joined them because they, were in, they had done TCS years before, and Sean had done those TCS Mastery the previous year before me. So I finished TCS. I ended up being coached by Sean at the time during my integration for a few months before I started my own mastery program. So during my mastery program, uh, they, they did a beta program for the Rising Warrior program. They did their first 90-day beta program. And, uh, yeah, I took part in it uh, as, a, as a student, basically. I just wanted to – they wanted me and I wanted to observe the course. Um, and then as that has developed – over time, we've really just crafted on, uh, you know, Sean, Lance had been working on this for years, but we realized that we were like, we had a really powerful connection, the three of us, and we wanted to start what we, you know, we, we looked at what was out there for transitioning veterans and, and first responders as well. Um, it didn't really exist. Like we, there was a lot of programs out there like, you know, self, uh, there's a lot of nonprofit organizations that deal with PTSD and, and trauma and all these different things that happen acutely in the military. And then there's the VA that provides medical services, et cetera. But there wasn't this self-development course specifically geared towards veterans and first responders that tailored, yeah, the message to them. And so our mission is to bring a lot of these self-development elements, this spiritual development, this connecting to your heart understanding what it really means to thrive and, and, and find fulfillment in your life and create a program specifically for that community to give back to our, yeah, to where we come from. So that's where, that's where it started. That, it's, it's tremendous. And I, the, the, it's such a needed thing. It, it really is. And what you're doing is you're integrating um, everything you've gone through in your life and truly moving towards that purpose in your life. And, and I think the, the way the synergistic nature of it with the training camp for the soul with helping veterans understand and i'll bring it all the way back to the beginning about grief and how men handle grief and my last question to you um, and then i'll turn it over to anthony would be from your experience helping veterans helping first responders dealing with mourning with grief is there anything any piece of advice that you might offer to someone that's experiencing that right now or, or has recently experienced it that could help bring them through a difficult situation yeah, absolutely, man. I think um, my experience has through TCS and, and some of the other work I've done is that like any emotion, grief is something that needs to be completely felt all the way through. Um, holding on to it, bottling it up, creating tension around it is just going to create conflict in your life. It's going to create uh, negative consequences both in your body and in your experiences with, with your uh, community with your relationships so allowing yourself to be with it you know uh, we talk about this at the retreat and during tcs as well anthony knows as well 
is really just allowing all of it. Like, if you're grieving something, cry. Cry it. Cry it out. Write it out. Allow yourself to really be with that sensation all the way through the end of it. And what's possible afterwards is is uh, is a sense of bliss, a sense of completeness, a sense of groundedness. Appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. I, brother, that resonates with me. Um, so my last question would be, if we like to ask all of our guests this, just as a quick takeaway, something that people can kind of take home from this whole conversation. You went through a lot of different things and a lot of different experiences. So if someone was to wake up tomorrow, what's something they could do immediately to start making a change or kind of start going down that path that they need to? What's one thing they can do when they wake up tomorrow morning? Most powerful tool for me over these last couple of years has been journaling. Um, you know, I don't need to teach you how to journal. You don't need to learn breath work. You don't need to learn ice baths. You don't need to learn any of those things. You can pick up a piece of paper and write out what's in your mind. Um, knowing what is there for you, sifting through it, understanding it is one of the most powerful tools that I've found. Um, I think everybody can do that every day to get clearer. Yeah, what's really going on in my head? What's really going on in my heart? What's happening within me that I'm not allowing to express? So on behalf of John L. Jones, I want to thank John <laughs> Perez Cruz for being on the podcast. Um, how could the Building Men audience find you, your journey, your mission? Yeah, beautiful, man. Um, so at John D. Perez Cruz on Instagram uh, and on Facebook and then uh, at the rising war at the dot rising dot warrior uh on instagram and facebook as well and then at the rising warrior.com so uh yeah come check us out if you're a veteran responder or a veteran if you're interested in any we talked about today yeah and if you're listening and you know anyone that has that has gone through yeah. something like that please share this episode with them where the, that they can find uh jp and they can find his missing any idea of what i wrote down for the title of this episode just as a joke title do you have any idea what i wrote down it's <laughs> got to be something with a few good men i'm assuming well, i i actually went with penis envy and the explosion of consciousness <laughs> <laughs> that's fair <laughs> That's what I'm writing as you're talking. I, I think I'm writing these deep things. I wrote penis envy in the explosion. I knew once he said that, that, that like triggered you knew I was something. Gonna, I know. I was going to write that God. down. Uh, and then I was like the, the, the part in A Few Good Men when he's like, you know, you want answers. And Kathy's like, I think I'm a touch. You want answers. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. That's it's like that's the, the most, most amazing. It line. is the most oh, amazing. Oh, God. And just the, the being able to have a spot to, to say that I know, on the we podcast, have, yeah. I wanted to be able to do that. And we'll start the episode um, with a clip from there so or something like that. Real, real quick, um, yeah. you know, where you can find Building Men is building.men on Instagram. Buildingmencoach at gmail.com is our, our email address. Um, our website is buildingmen.io. Before we go, we, we end Building Men. I typically say go one step further than you thought you can go. Can you say that in French for us? Oh, <laughs> putting you on the spot there. You can say you can say anything. I'm blanking out. You can put, you can you say could have made something up. And we were like, like, and this, yeah, he said you have a tiny penis, and uh, we're like, and that's right. You heard it here. You first. heard it here first. He knows what he's talking about. <laughs> oh, that's tremendous. Well, thank you, JP. Truly appreciate it. Uh, go one step further than you thought you'd go. We'll see you next time on Building Men. <laughs>